You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. I hope that you guys are excited because today really is a special Sunday. We get to have Dr. Sam Storms with us Um if you do not know Dr. Sam Storms, um, he has been very influential on a lot of people. Um, a lot of the people even that many of you may know, uh, the Francis Chans of the world, the Matt Chandlers of the world, the John Pipers of the world, have all been influenced by Dr. Sam Storms. Uh, our pastors have been heavily influenced by Dr. Sam Storms. Uh, he's authored 22 books, just finished uh, Romans Commentary, is that right? So just a little light thing. I plan on doing the same thing this week, by the way, and so write my own Romans Commentary. And so, um, but we reached out to him to ask him to lead our Holy Spirit Conference, and and he was gracious enough to come in and do that, and that was fantastic yesterday. I uh, was so glad to have him here, and today he's going to come and share, and so I'm going to invite him. If you will, welcome Dr. Sam Storms up. Thank you so much, brother, for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Glad that you have been able to wake up and join us. Uh, Without any further delay, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And I trust that... uh, By the time we are finished today, if you have ever had trouble memorizing Scripture, you will at least have one verse deeply embedded in your mind and your heart that you can call upon at all times. Luke chapter 12, we're going to read one verse, verse 32. Jesus said this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you to give you the kingdom. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning. And we're asking in the words of the psalmist from Psalm 119 verse 18. That you would open our eyes. That we might behold wonderful things in your word. So Spirit of God, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts. That you would strengthen our wills. That you would give us clarity as to the magnificent truths expressed in this single verse of scripture we commit this time to you now in jesus name amen i am altogether persuaded that you and i will never experience the truly abundant and abounding christian life until we have learned how to enjoy god we can be religiously active Faithful to attend church, avid readers of scripture, serving in some capacity, big givers, people who share their faith with the lost. But if we do not understand what it means to enjoy God, we will never grow up to maturity in the Lord Jesus. Now, I need to define my terms. What do I mean by enjoying God? Well, I'm talking about the experience of sheer unadulterated delight in who God is. To enjoy God is to find in Him the supreme treasure of our souls. Paul speaks of this often in his letters. He prayed in Ephesians 3 that 
we might be strengthened in our inner being by the Spirit so that we can understand and comprehend something that surpasses the intellect of man, namely the love that God has for us in Christ. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, talks about loving the Lord and rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what enjoying God is all about. It's what the psalmist had in mind in Psalm 73 when he said, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's what the psalmist meant in Psalm 1611 when he said, You have made known to me the pathway of life. In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's, in a nutshell, what enjoying God is all about. But we have a problem. The greatest obstacle to enjoying God is our belief, misguided though it be, that God cannot, does not, and never will enjoy us. That is a massive hurdle that we have to jump over. You see, our capacity to delight in God is only as good as our capacity to enjoy God's delight in us. And I think of that and I think, hold on. Any God worth his salt, any God, especially the God of Scripture, the only God there is, who is holy, righteous, just, and pure, could never find anything in me in which to take delight. And I live, as so many of you do many times, convinced that the only feeling God has when he considers me is utter and absolute disgust. That is why it is important every once in a while, maybe more than just once in a while, we need to be reminded of how incredibly good God is. We sang about it a moment ago, about the greatness of his love. Now, I know that sounds a little trite. I mean, after all, the very first thing you learn as a Christian is the truth of John 3.16. God loves us so much that he gave his son for us. But it's still one of the most difficult things for Christians to believe. We all too often live in fear that God really isn't good at heart. And that he has little, if any, desire to do good things for us. That if he does something good, he does it begrudgingly and reluctantly. I think this probably comes from the fact that we have seen so much bad in our world. I mean, I don't have to remind you all of the dire situation in which we find ourselves here in America and globally as well. Corruption, immorality, idolatry, political fighting, military threats, pandemics. And we look around the world and we see so much bad and we think, how can God in the midst of this still be good? That is why... I take such delight in every word in Luke 12, 32. Because sometimes I find myself thinking, if God is good, then he's probably only good to those who are themselves good. And since I'm no good, he won't be good to me. You ever think along those lines? And yet here in Luke 12, 32, Jesus speaks to overcome that fear and that doubt in our hearts. Every syllable in this short verse is designed to diminish the fear in your heart that God isn't really good. That at bottom, He's angry. He's irked with you. He's frustrated with you. He puts up with you. He tolerates you. But this verse is about the nature of God Himself. It's about His heart. It's not just about what God will do or has done. It's about who God is, what He delights to do, that which brings Him greatest joy. Fear not. Little flock.
kingdom. Now, my Jared just mentioned a moment ago John Piper. I've known John for almost 40 years. And one of the things he uh, said in one of his books has always stuck with me. He says, when you open your Bibles and you begin to study it, you can approach it with a rake. But when you rake, all you, all you get is leaves. He said, we should come to the Word of God with a shovel and dig, because if we do, we might find treasure. We're going to dig deeply into this verse this morning. There are seven words in this one verse that are life-changing. And I want you to look at them with me today. First one, opening words, fear not. Don't be afraid. Now, the interesting thing about this phrase is that it was used three times previously in Luke's gospel. Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, you remember the angel appeared to Zechariah, who was to become the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah was terrified. The angel said, fear not. And then a little bit later in verse 30 of chapter 1, when Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce that she would be the one to give birth to the Messiah. First words out of Gabriel's mouth, fear not. And then in Luke chapter 2, when the angels appeared to announce the birth of Jesus, the shepherds in the field are shaking and trembling, and the angel said, fear not. And the reason why they said that is because in each of these instances, those people, Zechariah, Mary, the shepherds, they were in fear of the welfare of their lives. They thought that these angels were a threat to them, were going to do them physical harm. That's not what Jesus has in mind when he says, fear not, here in Luke 12, 32. What he has in mind is something like, don't worry. Don't be filled with anxiety. Don't fret yourself. Don't lie awake at night thinking that God doesn't really love you after all. He's telling us not to live in fear or anxiety that maybe we put our faith in something that just simply is too good to be true and it won't come to pass. His aim in this verse is to defeat that kind of fear. The fear that each of us has to struggle with, that God is not really generous, He's not really kind, He's not really all that good and tender, but He's basically irritated with us as His children. Now, you and I can convince ourselves intellectually maybe that God is good. We can read it in the Bible and we can kind of, you know, check that box. But deep down inside, we live in fear that He's reluctantly good. Imagine for just a moment a courtroom scene and the judge has grown to really dislike the defendant. And he's just waiting for the opportunity at the end of the arguments to throw the book at him and lock him away forever until a very clever defense attorney cites a technicality in the law that compels the judge to say, all right, charge is dismissed, you can go. And we think maybe that's the way God is toward us. Jesus pulled a fast one. And coerced the Father into forgiving us at the same time that He really wanted to throw the book at us and nail us to the wall. That's the kind of fear that Jesus wants to overcome. He's not saying that we are never to fear God. He's simply telling us we should never fear that He's stingy with His gifts. That God is basically a Scrooge. And He only gives reluctantly to us. That it's against His nature and not in accordance with it that He treats us with kindness. We live in fear of this because, quite honestly, we've experienced it from other people. Somebody that you loved and they pledged their love to you and then one day you woke up and they were gone. Or at least their love had disappeared. And we think, maybe that's the way God is. 
Or we think God loves us because he's trying to set us up. You know, he's going to repeat how many times he cares for us, so we'll let down our guard, and then he's going to send us off to China to be a missionary or something like that. Although that would be a good thing. It's precisely that sort of fear that Jesus is counteracting here. Now, notice the second thing about this verse. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Those two words are the translation of one verb in the Greek text. The amazing thing about this word is it's only used six times in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, six times. Here's one of them. The other five all appear with reference to the same event. Either it's the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan or his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember on those occasions, this booming voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That translation, well-pleased, is this very verb. So here is Jesus talking to his disciples. And he's trying to describe to them, as forcefully as he can, the delight that God takes in giving them the kingdom, and giving us the kingdom. It's almost as if he says, hey guys, you remember I was telling you before I called you to be my disciples that how John the Baptist baptized me in the River Jordan, and the heavens opened up, the Spirit descended like a dove, and my Father spoke audibly and loudly about his deep delight and pleasure in me hey fellas ladies that's the same affection that the father has for you in giving you the kingdom what a powerful way of of expressing the reality of god's goodness and his love for us just as god delights in his son jesus christ so he delights in giving you and me the kingdom so Obviously, God is not acting in generosity to hide some malicious motive. He gives freely. It's his greatest delight. It reminds me of Jeremiah 32, what God said to the people of Israel, who probably had the same sort of fear. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart, And all my soul. God rejoices with all of his heart. Not half-heartedly. Wholeheartedly. To give you and me the kingdom. The third word. Notice how Jesus describes God. Father. It is your father's good pleasure. Now he could have said it's God's good pleasure. And that would have been fine. But he said it's your father's good pleasure. He wants us to think about God as our father, not as our boss or our employer or our teacher or our coach or our neighbor or the president or or a friend or a relative. He's our father. Now, I realize for some of you, that's not helpful. Some of you had a very abusive earthly father. And whenever you hear that word, it just kind of sticks in your throat and it's a hindrance to you understanding the affection of God for you. Maybe others of you didn't have an abusive father. You just had an absent father. He just wasn't there. Others of you had an accusing father. He just pointed out all your faults, never praised you for anything you accomplished. Others of you had an apathetic father. He didn't care. But God is unlike any earthly father. He never fails to speak the truth. His intentions are pure and they are for your good. By the way, if if you still struggle with thinking of God as your father, there's one thing you should do. Look at Jesus. Remember when Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's enough. He said, Philip, don't you understand? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. So let the Spirit of God rebuild in your heart a proper understanding of God as your Father by looking at Jesus. He's the reflection, the express image of our Heavenly Father. The fourth word. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God does not put up the kingdom for sale. I mean, how many times have you driven down the street and you've seen parked over on the side or in a the parking lot of a shopping mall or maybe in somebody's front yard a used car with a sign right in the front for sale and we think that's what god does with the kingdom it's up for purchase no it's a gift how many of you honestly if you looked into your own heart have been trying for years to amass enough spiritual wealth to somehow buy the blessings of the kingdom of god And God doesn't trade for the kingdom. He doesn't come to you and me and say, hey, all right, let's swap. Let's see what you've got. Oh, that's not quite enough. Come on, add a little bit more to it, and then I'll give you the kingdom in exchange for it. He doesn't do that. The kingdom isn't up for auction. You're not bidding against other Christians who have a lot more resources than you do. It's your Father's great pleasure and delight to give you the kingdom. You see, God is a giver, not a getter. Think about the dynamics of giving. You see, God's greatest delight isn't in making demands, but in meeting needs. One of our greatest joys is the delight we experience when we are able to give something to somebody that we care about. You imagine somebody comes to you with an exquisite gift, and you open it up, and you go, oh my, this is far too much. I'm sorry, I can't accept this. And if you look in the face of the giver, their countenance just falls. Why? you just rob them of the joy of giving their joy in giving is in seeing your joy in getting what they give you see the problem is we just don't trust givers we really don't can you imagine you know there's a person in your world in your life that you've you've always suspected they don't really care for you that much and then one day they show up at your door they knock and go to the door and they they're standing there with a gift and they you say, can I help you? And they say, no, I just want to give you this. I want to bless you with this. You look at it. Wow. Okay. A week later, they're at the door again. I've got a gift for you. And you open it up. It's even better than the one they gave you last week. And you're thinking, what's going on here? A week later, there they are again with an even better gift. And you say, all right, what are you up to? We're suspicious of givers. We think they have some ulterior motive. They're setting me up. They're going to spring a trap on me with all these blessings. God's not like that. So how do you honor a God who does nothing but give? I love, again, if I can appeal to John Piper, an image that he used to describe this. He said, so many Christians mistakenly think of God as if he were a watering trough. How do you honor a watering trough? How do you serve it? Well, by filling up your bucket with water and pouring it in and then going and filling it up again and pouring it in, making sure that that trough is full so it can serve whatever purpose it has. He said, no, God's not like a watering trough. He's like a self-replenishing mountain stream. How do you honor a self-replenishing mountain stream? You don't do it by, uh, by lining up a bucket brigade of people to constantly pour water into it. You honor it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking and quenching your thirst, and then getting up and telling other people where they can find water. We honor God by humbly receiving what He delights to give. 
the fifth thing in this passage. Fear not, little flock. Now, that's not really all that flattering. He's talking about sheep. He doesn't describe us as a pride of ferocious lions or a pack of ravenous wolves or a herd of thundering elephants. We're a little flock of dumb sheep. I'm sorry, my insults of sheep, they're dumb. You know, they just talk to a shepherd and you'll find out. They're helpless. They're utterly dependent on the shepherd. And this is one of the biggest roadblocks we face into believing what Jesus is saying to us here about God. It's what threatens to sabotage everything I'm saying to you right now. You know you're a sheep. You know your own heart. You know your own proclivities. You know how prone you are to wander away and commit the same sin over and over again. You confess, you repent, and then a day later you do it all over again. You know how weak your soul is. You see, it's our knowledge of ourselves that works against our capacity to believe what Jesus is saying in this verse. Let me, let me try to unpack this for you by uh, referring you to a psalm. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 103. Most Christians are aware of this. One of the most incredible psalms. Listen to the glorious things that God does for his people. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Notice he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. Man, this is incredible. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now you stop right there. And you say, but wait a minute. What about God's knowledge of me? I know myself. I know myself better than any of you here in this room. You know yourselves better than anyone else. How much more intimate and extensive and comprehensive is the knowledge that God has of you? And if you look at your own soul and you know yourself, you know your tendencies, you know your failures, and you say, I'm so offended by my own soul how much more must god be who knows me far better than i know myself that's how we reason and so we say to ourselves none of these things that i've just read in psalm 103 could be true because god knows me all too well but listen to the next verse verse 14 of psalm 103 for he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust Folks, I remember the first time I saw that, I said, God, that makes no sense whatsoever. That is illogical. It's precisely because you know my frame, how I'm built, how I, uh, I fail so repeatedly. You know that I'm a descendant of Adam who was made from the dust of the ground. You know my frame. You know that I'm dust. That's why you'll never do these things for me. God says, Sam, that's your logic. It's not mine. God says it's precisely because I know you thoroughly and exhaustively that I have chosen to be gracious and to remove your sins and not repay you according to your iniquities. This is the reason, our failure to understand this is the reason why when we sin, we run from God rather than to him. We say, my knowledge of God's knowledge of me prevents me from ever feeling that he is actually enjoying who I am, and is willing to do good things for me. Now again, 
I'm not suggesting for a moment that God isn't displeased with our sin. Of course he is. But of course, the glorious truth is that in Christ, we have total and complete forgiveness. Listen to that. Verse 8 of Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I go, wow. Then the next verse, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Double wow. And then he goes on to describe these things. And I say, but God, you know what I'm like. I don't have to remind you of the ways I've repeatedly failed you. God says, I know that about you. That's precisely why I am so gracious and merciful to you. It is divine logic. It certainly isn't ours. So no matter how well we know our own hearts, if we would but know God's, we would find the capacity to believe and to rest in and rejoice in his goodness. We're going to dig deeper. We're up to number six. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's one thing to be a flock. It's another thing just to be a little flock. I mean, not even a big flock, not even a mid-sized flock. Remember, he's speaking to about 12 people following him. He said, don't be afraid, little flock. Now, there are two ways of taking this word little. It might be a word of endearment. You know, when our daughters were young and um, we lived in southern, south-central Oklahoma and thunderstorms and tornadoes would rumble through on a regular basis. And our daughters would run into the bedroom and jump in bed with us, terrified of lightning and all the things that were happening. And I would hold my firstborn, Melanie, and hey, little Mel, it's okay. And then our daughter, Joanna, who goes by Joey, said, little Joey, it's okay, sweetheart. That term was my way of expressing to them how precious they were to me. I know you do that with your children. That may be what Jesus has in mind. But on the other hand, he may be talking about size and influence. He may be saying... You know, it's, uh, it's okay that you're not huge. It's okay that you live in a mid-sized Arkansas city. It's okay that you're not a megachurch. It's okay that you're a little flock. That is no hindrance to God's gift. That is no problem that God cannot overcome. He's not put off by your size. He's not put off by the fact that maybe you don't exert great influence in your community saying look don't be afraid little flock because it is your father's deep delight his glorious good pleasure to give you the kingdom and that brings us to the seventh and final word kingdom one of the reasons i think sometimes why we doubt god's goodness is because we have believed that he has promised to give us things that nowhere in scripture has he done so we think, well, if God's good, I, I'm going to trust that he's promised me great financial wealth and perpetual good physical condition. And he's given me power and popularity. And then all those things that we think God has promised, which in fact he hasn't, they don't materialize. And what do we do? He's obviously not good after all. He doesn't really care about me that much. But no, look at what he's promised. He's promised to give us the kingdom. <clears throat> Again, I imagine in my mind, it's, it's my birthday, all right? And I've been praying for a particular gift. 
and I've been writing little notes and putting them on the refrigerator door so my wife and my kids will see it, dropping hints here and there of what I'd like. And birthday comes, and they hand me a box nicely wrapped with a ribbon, and it's just the size of that very thing that I've been wanting from them. And I just tear it open, and I open it up, and I go, it's the kingdom. I was wanting whatever, and they gave me the kingdom. I mean, good grief. Folks, do you know what Jesus is saying in that word? It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. All the multitude of blessings that the kingdom entails. It means you're going to inherit the earth. It means that you're going to judge angels. You're going to reign forever with Christ. That you'll never see war again or injustice or suffer any physical affliction. It means that righteousness and joy and peace will will pervade your existence from now on into eternity. You will experience first and foremost God's presence. And you know the greatest blessing in the kingdom of God is God. To get the kingdom is to get God. You know, so many times when I talk to people and they, I ask them, what is it you're looking forward to in the age to come? They say, oh, walking on streets of gold. That's going to be fun. Or I'm, I'm going to have a resurrection body that's not going to suffer any affliction or disease or pain. Every, yeah, that's good too. I'm going to be reunited with my loved ones who've died and gone to be with the Lord. That's wonderful as well. Not diminishing those blessings at all. But if you could have all of those blessings and not God, would you be happy? I hope not. The greatest good news of the gospel is that we get God. We get Jesus. As Revelation 22 says, we will behold his face. So little flock, don't be afraid. Don't live constantly in anxiety and doubt and hesitation, wondering if whether God is really good at heart, whether he really has your best interest in view. In spite of the fact that you may be going through horrific circumstances right now, I can promise you, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, your Father's deepest and greatest delight is in giving you free of charge because he's gracious and loving all the blessings of the kingdom, especially himself. And it doesn't matter that you're not known. It doesn't matter that you don't exert influence, that you don't hold political office, that you're not a mega church. Don't be afraid, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I know the struggle that we all have, that many have even now after having dug so deeply into this one verse and we found treasure there, Lord, and yet so many of us still wrestle with doubt and fear and hesitation. Perhaps life has been really, really hard up until now and it still is and we're thinking there's simply no way that it could be any better. There's just simply no way God could be that good. Lord, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would awaken hearts, that you would illumine minds, that you would remove obstacles, that you would drive and banish anxiety and concern and worry from our hearts. 
that somehow this isn't really true after all. Holy Spirit, we need you to do that in us now. We need you to awaken in us the majesty of the incredible grace that is shown to us in Christ Jesus. Let us see our great Heavenly Father for who He is. Abounding, overflowing, gushing in goodness toward His children. Because Lord, if we don't believe that, we have no hope. And life will be just one constant day of misery after another. So Father, thank you for the words of Jesus. Jesus, thank you. You spoke these words. Spirit, thank you that you preserved them for us in Scripture. That today we can know that we don't have to be afraid. Though we are a little flock. Because it is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We thank you and we praise you for this in Jesus' name.